0: I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast.
3: Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by.
1: Hey, folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth, which is actually an episode of the See Here podcast. I broke into Morris Bristinsky's studio all the way down in Australia, me and Skiz Sizik, and this is the result as we talk about the Sparks Brothers here on an episode of See Here. Welcome to the see here podcast uh i'm your guest host mike white joining me is skiz Sizik. this podcast ain't big enough for the both of us damn straight On this special episode, we are taking over the See Here podcast to talk about the 2021 documentary from director Edgar Wright, The Sparks Brothers. The film tells the tale of Ron and Russell Mail, who have spent the majority of their lives as Sparks, an innovative and groundbreaking band who have spent too much of their time at the periphery of pop culture. We'll be talking about those occasional times where they managed to breach the mainstream, as well as possibly spoiling any twists that the film may have to offer. In the style of See Here, we're going to go ahead and play the trailer now.
2: Throughout all the years that I've been making music, if you get on a tour bus with a bunch of musicians, eventually the conversation will go to Sparks.
3: I remember just seeing them all the time, like, who are those guys?
4: They are a band you can look up on Wikipedia and know nothing.
2: We are Sparks, dude.
0: Welcome, sparks.
2: Sparks.
4: sparks. Frequently asked questions about Sparks. How many
2: albums are there? Twenty-five albums. Are you brothers? We are brothers. How did you first meet? We are brothers. Music at its best. You hear it and you go, Oh my God, what is that?
0: It's insane, but it's fantastic.
4: Each time you'd go to the rehearsal, there'd be something new there. Like, sh- that's good. It
0: wasn't like anything else. All pop music is rearranged sparks. That's the truth. There are throwaway riffs that other bands have built whole careers out of. One of my favorite moments is John Lennon ringing up Ringo Starr. You won't believe what's on the television. It was the sound of the future. Sparks is way more prolific than all of the artists we consider to be the greatest in the world. A template. That a beetle would pretend to be Ron. That's amazing. They were taking all their creative
2: juices and putting it into something that they loved. They were a bit much for most people. The culture just wasn't there yet. Is there anybody out there at all right now?
3: They've reinvented themselves several times. The thing that marked them was their unwillingness to give up.
2: That sounds like the scene from our biopic. <laughs> Time has
1: come. Here we are. They may have given birth to other bands who don't even
2: know that the lineage goes back to them. Still are waiting to get paid back for that. Why have you resisted doing a documentary until now? We didn't want to do the standard documentary full of talking heads. It would become too dry.
1: Because before we even start to talk about the movie, what is your history with Sparks? In 1980,
3: Epic Records started a series of what they called New Discs. They were these 10-inch records. N-U-D-I-S-K. They put out, I don't know how many, maybe a dozen or so, but it was like some bands you'd never heard of, and then Cheap Trick and Shakin' Stevens, and I can't even remember them all. But I loved them, because they were they were 10-inch records, which was sort of a novelty at the time, and one of them was a band called Propaganda, and I really liked the Propaganda 10-inch, and so I'm in the record store one day, and I'm looking through the cutout 8-track bin, and I see that Propaganda has an entire album out called Sparks, and <laughs> anybody that's a Sparks fan knows where this is going. I bought this 8-track, I took it home, and I put it in my player, and I immediately thought something like Maybe this isn't the same propaganda, you know. And of course, my you know what was I, fourteen? This was like nineteen eighty or so. I was thinking, well, why would there be two bands called Propaganda? Of course, I had no idea that there'd be plenty of bands called Propaganda over the years. But so anyway, I started thinking, well, maybe uh, maybe I got this wrong. Maybe the band is called Sparks and the album is called Propaganda. So the next time I went to the record store, I looked for a Sparks section and found all these albums, all these really cool album covers. And I was like, wow, this band has been around for a while. <laughs> and I, I'm just discovering now I wasn't sure if I even liked them. I, I was like, I'd never heard anything like them. I mean, the closest thing I could think of with like male falsetto vocals like that would have been Queen. And, uh, this was definitely not Queen, just as quirky. I did know that it was a band that if I was going to like, I'd have to keep it a secret for a little while. I I was already being bullied for liking Bowie, you know, and in my neighborhood, the the names you got called for liking Bowie, I could only imagine what they would have called me for liking Sparks, except that all these years later, I realized, well, they wouldn't have even known who Sparks, (laughs) they wouldn't have known anything about this fan at that point. But so, yeah, I, I I got in around 1980. and I've been a fan ever since. I especially love the first five albums. And then everything after that, there's never been an album I didn't like. There's some I've liked a lot more than others. And even the ones I liked the least, I still find really interesting things on them. And I find them worth listening to. How about you? How'd you find them?
1: I've got a weird history with them, not as colorful as yours. But I think I found them first through videos. I think it was the video of Ron where Russell is the ventriloquist puppet. That was a really trippy video. It might've been that it might've been cool places or it could have been angst in my pants on the Valley girl soundtrack. I think it was probably the videos first. And then I bought Kimono my house just based on the album art alone, and I think it was a cutout album as well, um, when I was in college, and that was when I heard this town ain't big enough for the both of us, but I was used to that song. The Suzy cover, I didn't realize that the entire album, Through the Looking Glass, but I didn't realize that every song on that album was a cover. I recognized, like, Trust in Me from The Jungle Book and maybe one or two others, but Wheels on Fire and Little Johnny Jewel, like, it was a great introduction to other bands, not really knowing that I was getting introduced to other bands. So then when I heard, like, television, I was like, oh, okay, I know this song. But yeah, when I heard This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us on the Kimono My House album, I had to be convinced that it was a man singing. He hits those notes better than anybody. He is just amazing with that vocal range. Then it was years after that that I was listening to an Outside the Cinema episode where they were talking about the film Roller Coaster. And they were talking about Sparks, but they didn't know who Sparks were. And it was like, oh, this guy, he's got a Hitler mustache. And <laughs> there's this other guy with long hair. And I'm like, oh, that's Sparks. And then I'm, it was one of those where you're listening to a podcast. I'm sure nobody ever does this with me, where you're listening to a podcast and you start getting mad because you're like, it's this, it's this, you know? It's psycho. <laughs> no, it isn't psycho. It's psycho.
2: No, 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 it is, it is psycho. <laughs> is this about a motel owner who's crazy and kills a woman in a shower? No, no, I just told you it's about this newspaper tycoon. He had a sled named Rosebud, and, uh, and they're all trying then to Then I guess it wasn't it.
0: Psycho, was it? No, it wasn't Psycho. It was Citizen Kane? No, it was a- a- Angie. Angie, no, Angela, no, Angela, no, Angela,
2: no, Angela no, Angels. No, the no, Trouble
0: with no, 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 Angels. No, 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 it wasn't The Trouble with Angels, no. That's a Haley Mills vehicle. That's not even close. The Front Page. Oh, the Front Page is a comedy. Did you laugh once? No. Then I guess it wasn't The Front Page, was it? Oh, well, what the hell was it then? Citizen Kane! It was
2: Citizen Kane! It was Citizen Kane! It was Citizen
1: Kane! When the Sparks Brothers documentary came out, I was very excited to see that, though I think I tried to see it at South by Southwest when they were doing their remote festival. Ended up just sleeping on it, like l- almost literally. Could see it for 24 hours through a screening thing and was unable to see it. Kind of like your story with the uh screener that we got last weekend yeah i guess i should make a disclaimer that
3: uh you know the distributor was very kind to give us a window to uh watch the film in preparation for this podcast and uh i've, I've had some uh some family issues to deal with and i missed that window but i did see the film four months ago uh, as part of the sundance film festival and i loved it and i couldn't wait to see it again i thought i was going to be seeing it again this past week but it's actually going to start showing theatrically in my town and it,
1: Uh, real soon, and I'm definitely going to go see it again. And hopefully this episode will be out just in time for people to hear it and then yell at the speaker saying, no, no, you got it all wrong. There's some big Sparks heads out there, And, and I am being very careful to not say the Sparks because I've made that mistake once and I got corrected. So it is Sparks, but the documentary is The Sparks Brothers. Which they hate that title. (laughs) <laughs> I do remember that. That's in the film, right? <laughs> uh it might be, yeah, I think so. Uh, oops. <laughs> it's alright. Well, we gave the warning. We can spoil the heck out of this. The trailer is a little interesting because they do the right thing by showing all of the people that they've gotten to talk about sparks. So you have a really wide range of musicians and other folks to talk about them. They're not really in the documentary too much. It becomes more of a straightforward music doc, I would think, to just really kind of tell the story of Sparks. I mean, we talked a few months ago about the Susie Quattro documentary. Kind of reminded me of that a lot, especially in this whole idea of we are not getting any play here at home, so let's go over to England. And they really made a big deal in the documentary about how they are seen as a British band, even though they're not British.
3: Awful lot of bands like that. One of the things that I, that I really liked about the film was the Q&A that Igor Wright did after the Sundance screening. He mentioned that he wanted to put everything in there. He didn't want anybody to walk away saying, yeah, but what about that time they did this? Or, you know, what about that? I gotta say, he's it's a pretty thorough film. I mean, I was trying to think of anything else I knew about Sparks anything major or important that wasn't in there. And I couldn't think... Like The first thing that came to my mind was I I remember they were going to be working with Guy Madden at some point. And of course, I'm, I'm a huge Guy Madden fan, so I was interested to know more about that. Except I don't know if they ever did anything with Guy Madden, so good reason to leave that out of the film. I'm pretty sure they contributed a song to one of his films. I kind of remember hearing their music in, in uh, Forbidden Room, maybe? I have to go back and rewatch all the Guy Madden films. The Running Time... <laughs> yeah what is it two hours and 220 i think yeah two twenty. that's a bit long but if you're a sparks fan that's that's 220 you're going to be over overjoyed you know and i imagine if you're not a sparks fan you know it's going to be interesting for a little while you know i could imagine somebody that doesn't know anything about them maybe losing interest part of the way through but still walking away having having learned a lot about this band that they will hopefully go check out more from
1: Learning a lot, but yet the Sparks brothers don't actually say that much. It's not like an interview documentary where they're telling their own story in their own words. There is a FAQ section to it, and you do get the occasional like clarification. But it's not like we're sitting there with these two guys, and it's like, well, in 1968, blah, 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 the story is told through some of their memories and then through a lot of like claymation and animation, archive footage, you can tell that there was a good deal of money behind this as far as the rights to all this stuff. And especially you're saying, you know, if you're a Sparks fan, you're going to be very satisfied because they shove so many different performances into this. It's like, how much money did they give to ABC to get all of those clips? It was like Dick Clark should get third billing in this film. I'm a documentary
3: filmmaker, and I'm always keeping my ears and eyes open to people discussing documentary films. And I know that these days there are a lot of people that just like every time a new documentary comes out, they're like, oh, there's talking head interviews. Oh, there's animation. And they act like that's a bad thing. I'm like, I can't imagine the documentaries they're expecting to see without those things. But in the case of this film, I thought the animation was great. It was fun to look at. And it served whatever we were you know, hearing about. And so, yeah, it, you know, people that don't like animation and documentaries. Okay.
1: Maybe stay away from this one. You know, you'll be a better person for it. It's a great storytelling medium, especially when you don't have the actual footage of this stuff to represent it. And yeah, I thought it looked fantastic. I thought it moved the story along. You talked about the running time. I wouldn't necessarily consider myself a Sparks fan. It's like, other than the one album that I bought because of the cover art, I can't say that I have too many of their albums in my collection, and I don't know that much about them. So coming in as a complete noob, I was like, wow, this really tells the story. And it makes me very interested in now going back and listening to some of those albums. And the two-hour and 20-minute running time, it just flew by for me. I wasn't looking at my watch at all throughout the entire thing.
3: I did love how it touches on every single album because you know I don't have them all. I haven't heard them all, but it it kind of clued me into a few that I'm like, oh, I should uh, I should seek that one out. I, I I've passed that one up all these years, but you know, based on what I saw and heard in this film, that
1: might be another one to add to my favorites list. And they definitely. Explore different musical styles, and that was the thing that I really appreciated, too, was when they would go from album to album and just talk about how, like, oh, and here they kind of reinvented themselves, and now they're more of an electronica band, and here they're more of hard rock, and here they're more this or that. I really appreciated that they did take that time to go through each of those albums and talk about what made them popular or not popular. A few years ago, there was a documentary, I think it was End of the Century, the Ramones documentary, and I had this major gripe with it, which was the doc kept setting up, the Ramones were poised to be huge stars, and then something happened and they weren't huge stars. With the Sparks documentary, it just feels like they're constantly skirting the mainstream and there are those moments like The ones that I talked about, like some of their music videos and some of their appearances on uh, American Bandstand or in Roller Coaster, these kind of things. Yeah, they never made it. So having this documentary really pulls back the curtain to show, like, these are the guys that made that really wacky video. Here are the guys that... You know, you heard this one particular song in this movie. Well, here's the story of these guys. I thought that the way that they approached it as far as how influential they were, but yet how they really never broke through, really fit for this a lot more to me than the Ramones. I mean, that's a cliche
3: of music documentaries that, you know, this artist should have been more successful than they were. And it always bugs me. Because as a musician that's never really been very successful, I think, man, I would trade places with them in a second. (laughs) Like, if you're going on tour in a bus instead of a van and you're sleeping in hotels instead of on people's floors, you've reached a degree of success that you're taking for granted. And if you can get gigs and people come to them, I've gone years without some of those things. (laughs) I would gladly trade places. And, you know, with Sparks, I like, their success level is almost kind of Perfect for what they do, because if they had been bigger, if they had really been mainstream, we'd probably be sick of them. They'd be hasbins by now, and people would be making fun of them. But the fact that they've always remained a cult band and with a good, strong cult following that can you know sustain them means they can keep going forever, you know <laughs> until they decide to stop, they can keep doing it, and so I think we're all better off for that i'm I'm sort of glad. You know, A lot of my peers, I feel like, discovered them when they were on Saturday Night Live doing I Predict and Mickey Mouse. It was one of those moments. I mean, I I have lots of stories about when certain bands are on Saturday Night Live, like what the discussion was going to be at school on Monday morning. And I remember kind of dreading that discussion because I didn't want my peers discovering this band that I liked that I knew they'd never heard of. And to my surprise, they liked them. And I thought, oh, no, I don't want them to. <laughs> you know, I want to keep them to myself.
1: <laughs> You're so greedy, Skiz. Yeah, I
3: know. I'm a
1: snob. The personas that they have, the, the the performing personas are so great, and I just I love Ron with the way that he just kind of glowers at the camera. Oh man! And then yeah, Russell is just like the rock star with the long hair and dancing around and all this. It's like I can see why the guys from outside the cinema were just like, "Who the hell are these guys? What is going on here?" Because yeah, they, they are so striking and. Damn, good musicians. That songwriting, man, I'll put some of their records on
3: and sit there and and read the lyric sheet and like, man, this is like on a whole nother level. Could never write a song like this. I'm tempted to cover a few, but even that's going to be difficult with my talent
1: level. I did talk about some of the people that they get to come on and talk about Sparks. And I find it very interesting as I'm watching it, they kept showing back and I was like – is this Beck or is this young Thurston Moore? If Beck wants to know what he's going to look like in 20, 30 years, all he has to do, I think, is look at Thurston Moore.
3: Yeah, I've been thinking about that ever since Beck first came out. And and come to think of it, I used to see uh, Beck and Thurston Moore in pictures together and in videos together when, when Beck's career was first starting. So I, I don't know that it was it's an intentional look for him, but I, it may just be a
1: coincidence or a Maybe they're distantly related or something. I'm waiting for the Beck biopic where Michael Sarah plays Beck. Did I see right in the movie that there was a tour poster at one point that said Sparks with opening band Queen? Yeah. Wow. I remember that. I've got to assume that they,
3: I mean, they were around a little bit before Queen and they were probably bigger than Queen was for a while.
1: So that would make sense. It was funny, when I heard one of their, I can't say one of their their latest albums, because it was probably 25, 30 years ago, but that song, Dick Around, I kept being reminded of Queen while I was listening to that. And I guess you're right, because of the falsetto, because of the kind of glam that um, Russell affects, I was reminded of that. And then also some of the orchestration of the way that they were doing the different versions of Dick Around and how the song would move in in different ways. You never knew which way it was going to go. I can definitely see, if you really like Queen, that Sparks is probably a good band for you. I'm definitely a Queen fan as well, and that's another band I kind of had to keep my fandom a secret <laughs> in my early days and i appreciate that sparks it's not like they had a fallow period where it was just like "Ooh, what happened to sparks you know it's, because they've been producing stuff all these years so it wasn't like it was some sort of revelation where it was like oh yeah there's a new sparks album it's like no just wait a while there'll be another one and they're still going strong as far as i can tell yeah there's one that just came
3: out not too long ago which i don't i haven't gotten yet but uh Friends who have it tell me it's great. I just keep trying to, f- hoping I'll run into an affordable copy because <laughs> all the ones I've seen have been pretty pricey. And again, great cover art. It's got this dripping paint thing going on. And yeah, and all their covers, not all of them, but most, a lot of their covers are, are just fantastic.
1: What is that one where Ron is in a wedding dress and Russell's the groom, I think it is? That's Angst in My Pants. Okay. So that's both the song and the album. Yeah, that's the one with Mickey Mouse, and I
3: predict, and uh, eaten by the monster of love. That's a fun album. I think I got that in a cutout bin not long after it came out, and or maybe I bought that new. I don't know because I
1: knew those songs when they were on Saturday Live, so I must have had it new. And I was very curious when they were talking about, you talked about how they almost, or how they did work with, uh, Guy Madden, or as the French call him, Guy Madden. The whole thing of them almost working with Tati, I was like, oh man, that would have been really interesting to see that. And I was glad that they had some footage to show that, them together, and, you know, some, some Tati, uh, nods in there. That was nice. Because this is, you know, I said up top, this is an Edgar Wright film. Edgar Wright, who's mostly known for his narrative work and mostly known for his incredible, you know, use of music, his incredible style. And this movie has that style in part through this whole thing so it it, it, you know like i said two hours and 20 minutes but it moves man it does not feel like we're sitting around with this and it is just going 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 i mean i wasn't a big fan of baby driver but i did really like what he was doing with the music and especially at the beginning how it was very much like smaller rhythms and so he's man his cutting style I just love what he does with stuff. I mean, it's it's kind of Sam Raimi, but he's kind of made it his own as well and to see what he does with a documentary, I was like, wow, this is really impressive that he could put this together.
3: And this is I guess his first documentary. I, I, I think don't so. I know a lot about him as as a documentary filmmaker. It's like one of those subject matters I'm so jealous of. <laughs> you know, I would <laughs> I would love to have made this documentary. <laughs> Especially, you know, if you can get the rights to it. All, the, all the music, all the video clips. What a dream. You don't need to interview anybody. You can just, you know, cut all that stuff. But yeah, he did a great job putting it all together. and I loved the look of the, uh, the interviews. There was one thing. It, the interviews all looked very similar. They looked like they rented a room somewhere and just had these people come in one at a time and do their interview. Seeing Todd Rungren show up, like in Todd Rundgren's book... So now I am forgetting the name. I think it's a wizard, a true star. I think it was the name of the book. I could have sworn that he said that you know he produced that first album and then never talked to these guys again or something like that. I'd have to go back and reread that chapter. But it was—I remember it was kind of striking that making their first album was a good experience, and he expected he would work with them again, and he made it sound like never had any contact with them again. So I would think that maybe they ran into each other the day the interviews were being shot, and that would have been an interesting meeting to uh, be in be a fly on the wall. For
1: right. Yeah. I'm almost wondering if he shot it the way that you're describing or knowing him, maybe he even just did like green screen and got people to blocked out the, the back. Cause yeah, they all seem like they were shot on the same day, which just would have been amazing if he could have pulled that off <laughs> or at least the same
3: space for sure. I mean, it's, it's quite possible. I've seen filmmakers do this where they, they have their setup, they have the backdrop, they know the lighting and they can go to any town and set that up and, like, get the effect that it's all in the same spot. And I imagine that, you know, th- these people
1: all over the world, although it did seem very, uh, like, a lot of L.A. people. And I really, I didn't even mind when he injected himself into his own documentary. It was just like, I am such a fan that I have to be part of this
3: documentary. <laughs> he's a celeb and he's a fan and maybe they were an influence on him somehow. It makes sense.
2: Yeah, makes total I sense. that
3: easily, so. I meant to look up what year was was Paul McCartney's coming up video? Oh yeah, because I feel like that was probably before I knew who they were, so I didn't even catch that he was pretending to be Ron in the video, but how cool <laughs> you know that's something I learned from the from the film. I didn't know that and, uh, and now I want to see that video. I remember that video when it came out, so I definitely uh I saw it many times, but i it, it never dawned on me. I probably thought that it was Hitler. Yeah, you know, he was pretending
1: to be Hitler or Charlie Charlie Chaplin or something. I you know, sparks never crossed my mind. Talking about his stage presence, Ron's stage presence, to to have Paul McCartney be able to not necessarily mock but pay homage because you were so distinct and just the way that he was doing that glowering that Ron would do. It's like that's great. Yeah, it means they were on TV enough that Paul McCartney saw them enough (laughs) to know how to do that are there any particular places that you would recommend people start with sparks i mean would you say start at the beginning or is there like the album of like this is your good introduction to them
3: i don't think i would say start at the with the very beginning which was the the half nelson album i think that might be a little too weird for somebody to start with even though that's where the public started definitely work your way back to that one I love uh, Propaganda and Kimono My House. Uh, Both those albums, just all the way through, are fantastic to me. And uh, Wolfer and Tweeter's Clothing. So that's the first four albums right there. And then Indiscreet, I love that one, too. Yeah, like I said, the first five albums, (laughs) I love. So I would recommend Propaganda, but that's because that was the first one I heard, and it holds some sentimental value, and it contains... Probably my favorite Spark song, which I'm not going to say what it is because I do plan to cover it maybe sometime soon. (laughs) Now,
1: if we were really good, I'd be ending this uh, episode with that cover, but sorry. Yeah, I won't have it recorded in time. Yeah, at first I thought this documentary was going to go in a different way. Um, Having watched a couple Alice Cooper documentaries, I think that was two years ago, when they brought up Miss, is it Miss Chrissy of the GTOs? I was just like, oh, so they're going to fall into the Frank Zappa camp, you know, because I saw the Alice Cooper documentary and then I saw the Frank Zappa documentary and I was just like, oh, okay, this is going to like also be a chapter of that. But they kind of stayed away from that one. Sparks doesn't
3: strike me as a, a big groupie band. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I forget, you know, again, it's been four months since I saw the film. I don't remember if they if that's ever mentioned. I could see Russell probably attracted a lot of the, the ladies, Including Jane Wheedland from the Go Go's. I mean, yeah, good for him.
1: And she's still so cute.
3: Yeah, I know. And I loved. I loved the Go Go's documentary too. I, I, yeah, we've we've been blessed with a lot of really fun music documentaries the past year and a half or so. I'm a big fan of music documentaries. I rarely go back and rewatch most of them, but pretty much all the ones I've seen in the past year and a half. Like I'm ready to see again, you know, and I'll probably even buy if I see them on Blu-ray or something. Yeah, that Susie Quattro. Actually, okay, not all the music documentaries. There are a few, and I'm starting to think of some of them. And I'm like, nah, I don't think I'll buy the Herb Albert one, but yeah, <laughs> I liked it, I enjoyed it, but yeah, I don't need to own it. Um, but the Susie Quattro one, that was great. The Joan Jett one, the Go Go's one, the Zappa one. You know, it's just all bands I loved, you know, decades ago. All getting
1: documentaries now. and Lucky me. What are you uh, looking forward to next as the uh, big documentary?
3: I've already seen the Alex Chilton, or I saw an unfinished cut of the Alex Chilton documentary, which was fantastic. Like, I can't wait to see the finished cut. I'm really looking forward to the Red Cross documentary and the surf music documentary. I'm
1: looking forward to that. Well, I'm thinking even like dream ones. Cause like, I don't think, you know, I've, I've said for years, like, where's the really good cramps documentary. I would love a Susie and the Banshees documentary. I'd love a Bauhaus documentary, but I don't think that those things exist and they might not ever, especially the cramps one, but I can dream. We could use that. I know
3: there's a bunch of others and, and, you know, you never know when they'll actually come out. Like, like, you give money to these Kickstarters, and you get all these updates, and then the updates stop coming, and then all of a sudden it's premiering at South By.
1: Yeah, what, whatever happened to uh, Under the Smogberry Bushes or whatever that uh, Dr. Demento one was? Oh, I didn't know about that. Oh, yeah, I gave money to that one. And there was another one. Oh, that one, I finally did get an update. But it was sent personally to me. It wasn't sent to all of the backers. There's a documentary about a particular humor magazine that started in the 1950s that... I backed and I said, Hey, can we get an update? And then, yeah, like I said, the update was sent to me personally. And I was like, I'm sure your other backers would really like to know
2: this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You haven't updated anyone in two years. Maybe you should. And then it was funny. I was on another one and I wrote a little note that was just like, any updates on this? And then I looked down on the page and there was a comment from me 11 months prior that said, any updates on this? Yeah, you may have lost your money on that one.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
3: maybe. Well, Nash the Slash, that's another one that I, I gave money to that I'm looking forward to. Because, uh, you know, it's a, another obscure musician that, uh, yeah, I wasn't a big fan of, but I was certainly aware of. And, you know, just the footage in the Kickstarter trailer looks great. I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to learn more about this guy because I never knew. Do you know who, who I'm talking about? Nash no. The Slash. He was sort of like an electronic music pioneer. And he uh, wrapped his face in bandages so he looked like the Invisible Man. And he was like a one-man act. I I saw him when he came to Baltimore. And it was just like, you know, this guy with a cool hat and face bandages and sunglasses wearing a suit playing a – I think it was like an electric mandolin or something. And he had this like rack of equipment next to him that was basically his backing band. And uh, I don't know if it was MIDI or what. You know, it could have just been a cassette deck. <laughs> For all I know, it could have been a prop. But I've never known much about him. I, you know, I would see pictures of him in magazines, but never big interviews or big stories or anything. So I'm looking forward to seeing the documentary and learning more about Nash the Slash.
1: So I think it was two weeks ago I texted you. There was a conversation that I was involved with uh, some of my former coworkers. One of them sent me the link to the Tiny Tim documentary that you and I talked about that I don't think either of us really cared for that much. And uh, my coworker sends this link. He's like, have you seen this? I was like, yeah, uh, it's not very good. And then he sent the other link, the one that I sent you the Vimeo for, and I don't know if you've watched it yet. I know I haven't. And then it was funny because he was just like, oh, if only there was a documentary about Wesley Willis. And so I was like, I've seen a documentary about Wesley Willis. That's why I reached out to you. (laughs) Talk about weird. I was looking at my friend Rich's letterbox and there's a Wesley Willis documentary he just watched last week. I was like, okay, he wasn't part of that conversation. That's really strange.
3: (laughs) I didn't mind the Tiny Tim documentary. I just felt like it was kind of like an intro to Tiny Tim I'm an obsessive uh, for, of Tiny Tim's and, and so I was it's a little selfish of me I was hoping for a, a film aimed at people that who are
1: already big fans but I wasn't even a big fan of Tiny Tim but I felt it was very Tiny Tim 101 I was just like no 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 I want to know more about this guy like it felt very very surfacy I was like no if I'm going to spend an hour and a half two hours with you I need you to Deep dive into this because it felt more like a 15 minute video that you would see on YouTube. And sometimes those 15 minute videos on YouTube are actually better than some of the two and a half hour docs that I'll see other places. There's one about the Kings. Do you remember the song Switching to Glide? I'll have to send you a link to the song. It's a great song. And the band had, they were a one hit wonder. It was a great little documentary all about the recording of switching the glide and how they came up with the song and explaining the lyrics and all this i was like this is fantastic (laughs) so i and i wrote to the person that put it together who was actually part of the band and he was like yeah i don't think we can make an hour and a half version of this i don't think we have enough story to tell and i was like fair enough. It's great that you did this, so thank you for doing it. And I was kind of glad that he didn't say, like, oh yeah, we should, and I'm going to take this dead horse and beat it for an hour and a half. That's when you find other stories.
3: One of the members is like having some kind of uh, something they're preparing for, and it's really important in their lives, and you make that a subplot that ends up being more of the film
1: than... <laughs> Right, or there were those rumors that Ronnie killed somebody all those years ago, and now we're going to investigate (laughs) it. (laughs) And you know, if not, that's true, just make it up. It'll make the film better. I mean, that's why true crime podcasts sell. I was, again,
3: going back to the Tiny Tim thing, I was happy, I'm pretty sure I remember seeing in the credits that the guy, I I forget his name, but uh, the guy who wrote the book Eternal Troubadour, which is... Probably the best Tiny Tim book out there. Like anybody that really wants to know all there is to know about Tiny Tim, start with that book. Um, I was glad to see. I think he was involved with the documentary, so it wasn't like. And I don't. I don't. I feel really bad <laughs> like trashing this film and not even remembering the filmmaker's name. Getting that guy on board was was a really good step in the right direction. You mentioned roller coaster. I didn't know about that. I learned about that from the film. I I didn't know they were in this roller coaster movie. So now there's a movie I want to see, even though it doesn't look like I really want to see the
1: movie. I just want to see the sparks section. I will be honest with you, Skiz roller coaster and you know, those guys from outside the cinema, Bill and Chris, they turned me on to the movie and their review was exactly the same thing that I'm going to tell you right now. It is better than it has any right to be. I really like the movie and you get to see one of the earliest performances of Steve Gutenberg. He even talks about uh, that in the Gutenberg Bible, his autobiography and uh, gives some good stories about how psyched out he was by his scene that was in there. So, but yeah, it it actually is a good movie. It's like, really? This is a good movie? <laughs> so, and I want to say it's streaming for free on Amazon Prime right now, so. Oh, cool. I'll definitely check that
3: out at some point.
1: There was a show
3: in the 80s called, uh, was it Rock and Roll Tonight? It was one of these things where it was like bands live in concert and then it, the audio was simulcast on the local commercial rock station. I guess so you can bootleg it or you're listening to your stereo or watching your TV. And they were on that. And I, I think it was around the time of the Angst in My Pants album. It may have even been the song I predict. It goes into just this drum beat. And he walks out on this platform and just starts stripping down to his boxers it you know and it was so out of character I, and i my apologies if this is actually in the film and i'm forgetting it cuz again it was 4 months ago when i saw the film but you don't see that on tv and forget it you know <laughs> it stays with you for decades and and again it was so out of character for him because he was just so still all the time and just like you know making those facial expressions and then for him to like do this little shuffle dance while he's taking off his clothes was like what is going
1: on here <laughs> i wonder if there's a compilation of all their videos because their videos were works of art yeah I, i'd love to see all the music videos
3: I, I have a lot of live footage from you know my torrenting days uh, <laughs> all the midnight specials and all those those appearances all again fantastic i mean the band you know it, we, we say sparks and we're just talking about these two brothers but you know when they
1: actually had a backup band whoever was in that band was always top notch when they seem to go through band members pretty quickly sometimes and like just kind of like oh yeah we're going to go back to america you get the sack yeah i, I did read an article
3: recently and uh i think thinking ugly things was about somebody who had been in their band and it was their big break or something and then just without any warning they were fired from the band i think they and some other members that had been fired started a new band and but you know they never really achieved the success that they were having in sparks so yeah it is kind of sad that that there were some people that were sort of like walked on along the way but that's also the music business sparks is these two guys everybody else is kind of a hired hand one of the mcdonald brothers from red cross was in the band for a while too ah, i'm forgetting which one i think it's steve <laughs> uh, the bass player that's Steve, right? I always confuse which one's Steve and which one's Jeff. You know, and I'm a huge fan of Red Cross. But I hate that I can never remember which one's which. Just like with Sparks, I always forget which one's Ron and which one's Russell.
1: If I didn't have my notes in front of me, I would keep
3: fucking it up. The most recent Red Cross album, they cover a Sparks song. The, the uh, When Do I Get to Sing My Way, which, you know, if, if you know the the Sparks version, the Red Cross version, you know, it's obviously the same song, but they do it a lot differently. And it's it. it it's a great song, you know, fantastic. And I think Steve had said that when he was in Sparks or, you know, in the backup band, that that was one of his favorite songs to play each night.
1: All right, we're going to go ahead and take a break and play an interview with the editor of the Sparks Brothers, Paul Trawartha, and we'll be back right after that. Can you tell me how you got into the business?
4: I started in the business in sort of quite a a conventional way, really. I, I sort of did a degree, went through the sort of higher education in that way. And I actually did a degree in animation, which I sort of think is a really fantastic grounding. I sort of advise anybody to do a degree in animation because by the time you've done animation, everything else in life is easy after that, basically. Traditional 2 the animation with painted cells and things like that. So um, it was a, a lot of work. And then through that, I, I um, went to Soho in London, became a runner and made a whole bunch of cups of tea and uh, delivered a lot of food. And I was quite lucky, really. Shortly after starting there, it, was, uh, it really wasn't particularly long. The uh, senior editor left, and I was asked if I wanted to sort of step up, and it was a real trial by fire. It was um, thrown in at the deep end with clients from day one. So, yeah, a lot of manual reading and things like that between edits. And, and yeah, and it's just gone from there, really. So I was staff for a, a decade there and then went freelance over a decade ago, which is great.
1: Have you always edited offline, or have you ever gotten your hands on the physical medium? My original experience
4: editing was actually on a tape-to-tape VHS system in, in I think, potentially the smallest edit suite in the world. It was, to call it a cupboard, would be talking it up, to be honest with you. It was tiny, and when we were, you know, at university, and when we were sort of, you know, cutting the animations, and things that we produced there, and just having some fun, and, you know, you'd have... Uh, 12 students piled on top of each other and I always kind of forced my way to the front so I could get my hands on the kit because I sort of found the process of being in an edit suite and not actually having my hands on the kit was the most frustrating thing in the world and I'm still to this day not entirely sure how anyone can do it to be honest with you and I think it does sort of speak somewhat to the close relationship that you end up having with the people that you were in the suite with because it's a lot of trust and I can imagine that creatively working with somebody where it didn't just gel would be absolutely awful. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I realized I had to have my hands on the kit. And fortunately, I've had my hands on the kit since then, really.
1: You've been working with Edgar Wright for many years. Can you tell me how that relationship began?
4: I started working with Big Talk with, on, on, on Attack the Block. As that was sort of taking place, we were actually working in, a, in the same facility as Edgar and Paul Matchless. As they were working on Scott Pilgrim, yeah, we were sort of crossing paths there, and then Naira Park asked me to step across and actually help out on the the um, special features for Scott Pilgrim, and so I did some of that. And yeah, I've done a lot of special features cutting for Naira. I think they've they place a huge amount of emphasis on the bonus content on the discs and have done from day one. And I've just found I've always historically found it a really fulfilling process actually it's um something i i do enjoy because you know there are certainly times where you're you know just delivered a couple of hundred hours worth of rushes that have been shot impromptu and you know then you've got to shape something from it and so i actually you know historically i have really enjoyed that and it's quite funny because i'd be Flipping between working on you know sort of really big commercials and then ask if I want to do another behind the scenes feature and I'm like jumping at it going absolutely I, I really enjoy that so I just love storytelling basically so yeah yeah and as uh, I say you know Edgar and I from the get go it's always been you know really lovely actually because he's so fastidious about anything he works on. And I feel really lucky, actually, because a lot of the stuff that I've done for him in the past, and, and certainly through this edit, I'm not saying there weren't, you know, sort of hundreds of notes to address and things like that, but it was a very, very fluid and sort of natural, you know, sort of mode of actually working. I think we think in a similar
1: way, and so that does actually help when it comes to making creative decisions. How did you get involved in the Sparks Brothers documentary?
4: I think the original intention was to try and get me on board, but I wasn't available. I was working on Ronnie's, the Ronnie Scott documentary that came out fairly recently. And um, so I was finishing that up, I mean, towards the end of that. And so there was a, so by the time I did come on board, all the interviews had been shot and, and uh, Kate and Tess, uh, an amazing um, archive team, have spent a long time prepping archives. They use a system called FileMaker, which enabled them to actually code up uh, all of the, the archives. So that was in a really strong state. The problem we had, the problem I inherited, was a, a quite an unwieldy project and so my first challenge was to look at it logistically and say right how can we make this work and we did we think it's just a case of just being really really organized and uh, so I went through that process of actually sort of pulling it together but creatively you know in terms of the questions and in in terms of a lot of sourcing of archive at that stage a lot of work had been done prior to me coming on board and then from there you know, I was listening to, because, you know, Edgar did 80 interviews. I was actually, there was such a huge quantity of assets. I, just to sort of keep momentum up, I was actually, the first thing I did was I, I took the interviews and I actually sort of uh, transcoded them to MP3s and just put them on my phone. And I was actually listening to the interviews as I was traveling in, as I was traveling out on the tube, as you know, on my headphones and just to sort of try and grapple with the quantity and familiarize myself and and write notes myself as I was going so that um, I could hit the ground running. There was a lot to get through. We had a, I mean, you know, with every documentary, every documentary you start, you feel at the beginning, you do feel slightly overwhelmed by the quantity of assets. And I, I, I worked on a, Documentary recently on um, Elliot Kipchoge, and um, who's an amazing sort of marathon runner. He was the first guy to run a two-hour marathon, and one of the contributors on that they sort of they were talking about a new project and they were saying they made the comparison they kept it in it's in the the final cut where they say you know when you start a new project it's like standing in a misty field because you can't see the edges and so you just have no idea how big it is and it's not until you've sort of grappled with the rushes and you start to feel your way and you find those edges and you go okay there's a lot but now i can kind of get my head around what we've got here and uh and that's when it starts that's when you're in a position to actually start sort of formulating a plan so So, yeah, and the more you've got, the longer that process takes.
1: The movie is two hours and 20 minutes long, but it flies by. How did you manage to keep that momentum throughout the film? Edgar was very clear in terms of the fact that, and it was very clear, not just in the
4: way, you know, when we had conversations, but it was very clear through the interviews he had asked all the contributors that they were very much album-focused. And so he was tracking through with the contributors album for album. And as a consequence of people talking about the album then broadening it out to talk about the guys and and their impressions of their music generally, what I found I wanted to do through that process was to, you know, I looked at it thematically. So I started to draw on themes like, you know, brothers and, you know, sort of transition of time and just other ones like pods, like, you know, sort of humorous bits and sad elements and just sort of pulling all of these non-linear thematic timelines together, which are very much audio based. They're based on the sort of dialogue of the interviews. And so they were there. But we also had. you know separate pods that were album by album we could actually track through the albums that way and so yeah the archive well you know a lot of it could be attributed to a specific album but a lot of it couldn't you know a lot of it crossed crossed multiple albums and wasn't specific so you always have to sort of break things down I mean every single job there is no standard format when it comes to selects you just have to sort of look at the intention get a feel for the rushes and and talk and then, you know, work out the best way to break it down and and be malleable in that regard as well and, and grow with it as the project grows, as you become familiar with the rushes. Just be malleable. And, and, and then by the end of that process of the breakdown, then you've really got a handle of it and you can sort of feel the film, I think, at that stage. But it doesn't exist. And uh, it's, I mean, it's very interesting, actually. We're working on a system at the moment, a sort of digital whiteboard system and I'm my current project and and uh, production are adding it's the most complicated digital whiteboard you've ever seen and i and i joked with everybody i was like that's really interesting because normally I've, I've never been in a position where i've been able to sort of look you know the sort of the thought bubbles and how things link that just normally stays in your mind and on your notes and and it's within the project and you do realize what a sort of um a complex stew it is actually when you've got all of the thematic elements in there all of the chronological elements in there and you're trying to um, construct an arc that you think is going to be fulfilling for the viewer. And every time there was a pause in the edit, Edgar was like, I think we can get something in there. I mean, he had such a lust to actually sort of just get everything in there. You know, it was very difficult to say to that, to be honest with you, because, you know, I, you know, quite often like to give people moments to reflect and to absorb what they've just taken in. And, uh, and it was a lot of fun because every single time I attempted to do that, it was like, oh, that's brilliant. We can get something in there. There's another great comment, isn't there? You know, and we would talk about that. And it's like, Okay, let's go. And so the pace of the edit is very much inspired by his desire. to. You know, we, we knew, you know, with a 50-year career, guys who have been as prolific, as like creatively prolific as they have. You know we knew we had a lot to get through, and the fact that the interviews had been structured you know album for album, and Edgar was very clear that he really wanted to track through the albums and you know originally you know the first part of the edit I as mean, a lot of people talk about long first cuts and you know we joke a lot about the fact well actually you know what you're actually talking about there is a rushes assembly you know but in this instance and and in many instances but in this instance specifically you know we definitely had you know a six-hour working cut that was that I had mixed and I had done all the graphics on and you know there was a 10th grade and you know and and that was because we basically what Edgar wanted to do was break down their career album for album and so we did i mean at one point before it actually even became an assembly what, it, what we were looking at is you know sort of up to 45 minutes per album and so every single album you know, had a beginning middle and end and then we were in a very luxurious position of being able to sort of look at that vast quantity of edited material and then sort of feel try, you know try and work out what what were the sort of permanent moments to bring up other issues, issues that exist outside of the music and, and, and when to, you know, use the music as inspiration to start talking about those other elements. The guys are so interesting and the structure was never going to appear in a standard rock doc format because they're in no way, shape or form standard rock doc guys. You know, I felt really it was really important at the end to come back to the point and say, you know, about you know, what's behind the curtain. You say guys that there isn't anything behind this curtain. It's just a lust to make music, a love of music. That's what they do. They get up in the morning. I mean, that's why we've got it in there. They, you know, they have a cup of coffee, they sit down together and they work and they work all day long. And, and if they're not doing that, they're touring and presenting their music to the world. They're incredibly professional and they're unique. And, you know, I think it's always lovely when the structure of the film and the tone of the film and the tone of the film should always match the sort of, you know, the, the, um, the subject I mean, it would be odd if it didn't. But I quite like the structure to, to, to match the subject as well. And I've done that. I've tried to do that every time I work on a project. And I actually, you know, I do think that the kind of the repetitive nature going through the album for album mirrors, you know, how they desired to present their way in the past as we cover in the film. And also it sort of reflects their lifestyle, you know. It reflects how they work and who they are. They love, you know, they love repetition. And uh, so I do think it's quite nice that you can sort of lay the lay those sort of foundations in there so people not only get to hear about them, but they get to kind of feel
1: them that way as well. Can you tell me a little bit about the animation that's used? It's another great technique of storytelling, especially when there isn't footage available.
4: Yeah, I mean, the animation, there were two, two flavors of animation in there. Uh, you know, with Joseph and his beautiful 3D animation, that takes ages. I mean, that's, uh, you know, they are... It's stunning work. And so we did have to, In because I do have a background in animation, I'm very sympathetic to the process and how long it takes and how much prep you require. And so it was really important that we were sort of focusing on the best candidates for those sections quite early on, cutting those sequences, providing an audio bed to Joseph so that he could then work into those sections in terms of an animatic, feed it back to us. We could talk about, you know, sort of stylistic approach and models could be built and, you know, and all of those sorts of things. But for that process was very long. And so those sequences were identified as early as we possibly could. And there was a lot of back and forth in that regard. The Brothers McLeod, Greg, he, his animation work, which is the sort of the 2D animation you see, the flat 2D animation, the very funny animation that comes up throughout. The beauty of, you know, the fact that we could have a sort of um, collage feel to this film and we would roll out you know, different styles of animation when we wanted to, it it was really liberating because in those instances, we sort of cut the sequences. We realized that somebody was relaying a story in the third person. And that's when we tended to use those. So as soon as the contributor told a story in the third person, we're like, oh, this is fantastic. We'll just jump in there and illustrate that point with animation. And Greg was so incredibly quick and funny and, you know, he's amazing. And so that was a lot of fun because, you know, we could have those
1: ideas, feed them out and see the evidence really quickly. And it was lovely. What was your working relationship like with Mr. Wright? Different directors have different attributes that they bring to a project. And I think you always take
4: advantage of you know, the, the strongest of those characteristics. You know, for me, with Edgar, what I would say is the fact that when, when you work with him, there is honestly a sort of a feeling that kind of creatively anything is possible. And that's really lovely. It's really liberating. And he always puts the creative, and he, I think he just en, he just enjoys the process so much. And so, you know, when we were looking at archive, you know, it was just, it was just so funny because normally, you know, when you're working with archive and, you know, you're playing, you're playing library and per second, it's sometimes you have to be quite pragmatic. And so you'll cut a sequence and then you'll be told, oh, actually across that sequence, we're actually using multiple sources. You know, that's, that's quite tricky. And I think with Edgar, it's very much like, well, let's just fight. Let's just see what we can do so we can prioritize the creative and realize the best version of the film visually. And that was just wonderful because we could just let our imaginations run riot. I mean, I actually had tests in the suite with me. The edit was split between being in Soho for a good, you know, at least half of it. And then, you know, I pulled back to my own suite, so I was working remotely. But when I was in the earlier stages of the edit, you know, I was sitting there, you know, with one of the archivists behind me and she was amazing and really quick. And I would, I would just sort of say, oh, wouldn't it be great if, and, and turn around to her and, you know, within an hour, two hours, she present, could present me with loads of options, you know, we'd put them in and play with them. And So, again, a, a really creative atmosphere it's always lovely in an edit where i quite like a not a silent room in that situation you know i had you know producers in the room and 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 the um assistants and 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 the archivists and stuff like that and you know quite often i I, i'm quite happy if i'll I'll work with headphones so that i can then take advantage of bringing everyone's heads together the points where you need it and you know you create that little boat and you go on the journey together and and this was definitely that case It was a really, really lovely atmosphere and a really creative one.
1: I have to tell you that I'm very jealous of you being able to access the archives and see pristine versions of some of those incredible music videos.
4: We were very lucky, and again, you know, Kate and Tess, they did an incredible job, a diligent job. I mean, what they did was they were provided, I mean, Ron and Russ, they're brilliant, Ron especially, in terms of you know, holding on to material. And, you know, we were provided with boxes of personal assets and, and, and VHSs of unseen content. But it's a gift at the beginning and a bit of a curse at the back end, because if you tap into, you know, sort of personally recorded performances of performances, then you are in a situation where it's, you can't attribute where they've actually come from. So, you know, Kate and Tess used that as inspiration, basically, to, you know, go out, find the original, get that in, code it up, give it to me. We know it's clearable, and And, yeah, we had a, an absolute wealth of assets. I think there were over 2,000 archival cuts, which all needed to be matched in the final edit alone let alone you know sort of all of the aspects that we actually had in the project i think in the film itself there's 108 music tracks in the final cut the music supervisor said that he had never licensed so many pieces of music for one film and actually bmg said that they had never licensed so many tracks for one film either and i think it's that sort of and that's a sort of the creative environment I'm talking about. You know, it's kind of like the aesthetic of the film is born of an opportunity to be as sort of creative as possible, really. And all, obviously because Ron and Russ, they were lovely enough to be, uh, enable us to make a film that is sort of as idiosyncratic as they are, and often tongue-in-cheek. A lot of people take themselves far too seriously to allow their their story to be told in a way that wouldn't be very, very serious. And, and they were great in terms of the fact that they were, you know, completely up for it and they trusted edgar i think that was a huge thing many people have asked to tell their story in the past and they they didn't feel comfortable Um, and i think they felt comfortable with edgar and it was a really lovely process
1: my co-host on this episode is a big sparks fan and i have to tell you not only did the film satisfy him but he actually learned a few things that he didn't know before people have said yeah, it's awesome you know it's, it's 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 a lot there's a lot and it's like and of course there is in it's a 50-year career
4: but at the same time you know as many people have sort of said oh I can see how this could have been sort of split and fleshed out and and obviously I've got a little wry smile on my face there because I'm thinking well obviously you know originally it was you know it's just uh it's it's, it's and, and it's not business it? so often it's stuff that um it's not just about what makes it interesting. the interesting aspect is what doesn't in the end, because there's absolute gold, you know, that just unfortunately couldn't make the final cut. And, and, it, and, it, and it falls to the floor with a lot of regret and back and forth but it's, you know, things have to go obviously. But I think Edgar, you know, as I said before, he's so passionate about getting so much in there. And like you said, if you're, if you're a hardcore, well, there's no such thing as a Sparks fan is not hardcore, you know, up until this point, because they've, they've appealed to their fan base and their fan base absolutely adore them. And so I think you. he, you know, he always knew that he was making it for the fans, and and hoping that by demonstrating his enthusiasm, he would ingratiate the band to a new generation of fans. And I just really hope that's the case because they really deserve it.
1: I can't wait for the Blu-ray. I bet there's going to be a lot of extras. Oh, blimey, there is. <laughs> that's going on right
4: now. Trust me, there is.
1: <laughs> Paul Trewartha, thank you so much for your time. It was a real pleasure. Thank you, thank you. Lovely to talk to you. Cheers. Bye bye
0: sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons
1: there's got to be a better way
0: now there is with good job brain an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver and now I can never shake that mental image thanks good job brain Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast.
1: Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. Thank you very much to Paul Truwartha for his time. Thanks again to Morris, to Bernard to tim for letting us take over the see here podcast this month they should be back with a regular episode maybe next month in the meantime be sure to check out other things over at projectionboothpodcast.com and really i highly recommend that you subscribe to the see here podcast you will find a link at projectionboothpodcast.com where you can go over and subscribe and we'll see you on the flip side